You're listening to the Autism Weekly Podcast. Each week, we share community voices and bring light to stories that increase awareness, acceptance, equity, access, and inclusion. If you haven't already, subscribe to join the Autism Weekly family. I'm your host, Jeff Skibitsky. This week, we welcome autism advocate and author Sam Farmer back to the podcast for another appearance to talk to us about what he would tell his younger, not yet diagnosed, autistic self. We hope sharing experiences from autistic voices can be empowering to listeners and maybe even offer a window into the experience of a loved one. The more diverse autistic experience we are all exposed to, the more we can discover viewpoints that speak to us. Sam, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you very much, Jeff. It's great to be back. Well, let's let's refresh because not everybody has heard all the podcasts and, and maybe you can give us just a little bit of background about you know, what it is and that led you to speaking about all these issues right now, and and maybe even when that moment was that you realized that you were, that, that you identified autistic and what some of those indications might have been. So basically, Jeff, I write, I guess, what occurs to me to write or to speak on. Uh, based on what I see before me, what I hear from others in the neurodiversity community, which I prefer to use actually over autism community because it's more inclusive. It's it's not just autism. It's, uh, it's things like ADHD, dyslexia, dysgraphia, a whole bunch of other diagnoses that fall under the neurodiversity umbrella. But I've learned so much from all kinds of people from all walks of life who are neurodivergent um, in various ways. And so that informs what I feel compelled to write about and talk about in my advocacy efforts. Okay. So, I mean, but this has changed over time is that when you talk to, when I talk to people, and try and solicit some of their feedback and and really understand their experience through the process is that the diagnostic experience was very different 10 years ago than it is now. The the talk about being neurodiverse was different 10 years ago than it is now. How do you how do you balance that? I mean, where where are those changes and what is the biggest impact of having more of a voice by neurodiverse people out there right now and guiding the experience and sharing the knowledge? Well, I think it's all about sharing lived experiences. What we've uh, what we've been through as neurodivergents, where we live in a society with social and behavioral and other expectations that were not established with us in mind, uh, the challenges we face, the stigma that we're up against, and our work towards greater acceptance, if not a greater sense of belonging, really, uh, among neurodivergent individuals, things we'd like to be able to feel, who wouldn't? want to feel accepted, wouldn't want to feel as though they belong based on who they are, their genuine true selves. And so that's what I try to do. I try to be genuine 
and in a way very raw and honest to kind of shed light on what it can be like to to live as an autistic, a proud autistic, because it's more than just about challenges and adversity. It's about strengths and unique attributes and talents that we have where we're trying to flip the script to embrace those sorts of things, if anything, to try to destigmatize, weaken the stigma, uh, flip the script kind of thing. Well, I'm, I'm glad that you're doing that, Sam. I mean, and others, because I know that there's an active voice to it. It's a team effort. There are many, but, many of us, and hopefully increasingly more, mm-hmm. sharing their lived experiences, their beliefs, how they view their neurodivergent profiles, that all of our voices matter. It's a team effort. It's an all hands on deck kind of movement. That's what it is. The neurodiversity is a worldwide movement that in recent years, thank goodness, has picked up a great deal of steam and with no signs of slowing down. As far as guiding, the community on and, and the needs, but also even when you're talking about, um, and maybe we can go into this, the, the past clinical experiences. I know as a clinician, I've learned a lot from talking to the neurodiverse community. It's changed a lot of the perspective for the good over the past 10 years. And, and I keep learning through the process. And you've seen it where most uh, most good treatment nowadays is strength-based, like you said, looking at the strengths and understanding the strengths and empowerment. It's what do you want to continue to work on and get out of treatment? The same Correct. way you'd be talking to anyone. And above all is acceptance, where all too often um, it would be more about how can I help this neurodivergent individual to be more neurotypical. No, doesn't work. Trauma is a very strong word, but it's a word often used by those kinds of clinical experiences that unfortunately can come across as suggesting you're broken, we need to fix you, rather than we accept you. We accept you for your challenges, your strengths, your unique attributes, and we want to help you, for example, to develop certain skills on your terms, client-centric therapy is what I want to see more of, and that thankfully I've, I've seen signs of, but I think we need more of that. No, and I couldn't agree. I couldn't agree more as that. I mean, just as somebody who would identify as neurotypical is that I look at the experience and there are areas of my life where I feel like I have strengths, areas that I have deficits, and I seek out support. Sure. Deficits. It's no exactly. different for a, a neurodiverse person is that they understand oftentimes, hey, this is an area I want to work on. And they will seek the support on that. It doesn't have to be forced upon them. It's something that, hey, this is That's an area key, of personal Jeff. connection. It can't be forced. To the extent that it's possible, it needs to be on the client terms based on what he or she 
would want to get out of the clinical experience, I turned to, uh, to a clinician, a speech-language pathologist, who's uh, a luminary in the social thinking paradigm. That's the methodology that she uses. And uh, I went to her saying, look, these are things I feel I need to work on, that I want to work on, that I want to improve on. And she was very, very effective at helping me to develop those sorts of skills, mostly around awareness of self, awareness of others, being able to recognize and use nonverbal communication, uh, which is something I had always struggled with as an autistic, and to understand that there are connections between how others view us and consequently how we then view ourselves. That proved instrumental, if not transformative, in terms of me being able to make more meaningful connections with people around me. And the beauty of it was that these were therapy sessions that were done largely on my own terms with a clinician who listened to my wants and needs, which unfortunately all too often hasn't been the case. And that can really lead to a lot of grief. And like I said earlier, it's a strong word, but it holds true trauma when you're not listened to, when your wants and needs are disregarded. When the messaging that comes across suggests that you're broken and you need to be fixed. And as as autistic individuals, me included, there are sensitivities involved. We we can be very sensitive in a number of different respects. And in that situation, it can become very, very difficult. Um And when you go to a clinician whom you're turning to for help, it shouldn't be that way. No, and And, that point that you're making right there is very important for everybody to hear loud and clear. It's it's the idea that if you are a, a clinician out there, if you're a therapist out there, if you're providing some form of social support to somebody out there, and you're not actively engaging, you're not listening to the person that you're working with and taking into account the app, you could create harm. And I I think that that trauma talk and the idea of just bad treatment and the thought of that being proliferated through a field is something the industry of treatment and in general needs to look at is understanding why, what's the root cause to this? And oftentimes, I would imagine it's exactly what you're saying. We're just not listening all the time to be able to really understand what it is that the focus should be. Truly client-centric therapy, where all too often the agenda that's pursued might be that of the clinician. Or in the case of younger clients, it might be the agendas of the parents who are often very well-meaning, certainly, but the individual 
going through the therapy might not look at it that way. And historically, there's unfortunately been too much of that. We've talked earlier, Jeff, about the need for greater connectivity and communication between the clinical community and the neurodiversity community. And it's absolutely essential. And I don't think there can ever be enough of that communication, which hopefully would lead to mutual understanding and and the need for the sorts of things we've been discussing here. No, absolutely. So when you look at your your past clinical experiences and you look at where things have gone, because I know that you also probably know a lot of very talented clinicians out there, and you just spoke of one. I do. It's a mixed bag. You know, some of them had proved to be very helpful, others not as much, some of them even damaging in certain ways. Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, what are some of the thoughts that immediately come to mind as because you've undoubtedly experienced some of the trauma that you're that you're discussing right now, as well as the positives. But what what are some of the things that you take a step back and say, and, and it could be to any of the clinicians that historically were out there and maybe didn't hear you, that they could have done better, that they should have done better, or that they could have included into their treatment thought process? So looking back, Jeff, there are a number of things that I wonder about. Pre-diagnosis, prior to me knowing that I was autistic, which that diagnosis came down when I was 40 years old, I'm late identified autistic, quite late. I kind of, in my mind, think analytically and logically in terms of I've got my pre-diagnosis clinicians and I've got my post-diagnosis clinicians. Pre-diagnosis, what I wonder about is, was I so good at masking my autism that the pre-diagnosis clinicians never brought it up in our sessions, that maybe they didn't see it in me? Did they not see the potential for autism in me based maybe on not having a thorough enough knowledge of autism, which is something you hear a lot about in the neurodiversity community, about the need for a greater knowledge of autism among clinicians, to know, to look for it in me. And if they felt that there was a possibility to to go down that path, of, of, of discovery or to encourage me to work with others to maybe get a diagnosis, um, or that maybe some clinicians did suspect autism, but because of the stigma that surrounds the diagnosis, regrettably, it dawned on me maybe they were scared to tell me that if they told me it might cause a great deal of unease, if not anger, that maybe I would, after having been told that, no longer work with them because they had ended up telling me what I didn't want to hear or what maybe I, they felt I couldn't handle being told that kind of life-altering <laughs> news. Mm-hmm. So uh, my mother was a clinician. And what impressed me 
about her work, which was with respect to social work and marital and family therapy, is that she would admit to us back in the day at the dinner table, to my father, to my brothers, you know, I'm, I'm working with this couple who realistically, I feel, I cannot effectively help because I feel they're too far down the road of being headed for divorce. This is the trajectory that I see for them. I'm not sure that I can really be effective for them anymore. And that really, really impressed me to hear my mother admitting to the fact that there are limits to what a clinician may or may not be able to do for a client. And so, yes, I'm critical of my pre-diagnosis clinicians in that regard, but at the same time, it's not like I loathe them or resent them. Those are strong words. Or that I thought they were incompetent. That's another very strong word. I don't go that far because I knew them well enough to know that their hearts were in the right place. They were there to try to help me. I believe that most, if not all of them, helped me as best they could. One in particular who I met with around 1990, after my sophomore year of college, I couldn't fault him for not bringing it up because autism was diagnosed so radically differently back then mm -hmm. than it is today. Um, he sticks out because of how effective his help was at helping me with respect to self-esteem building, mm -hmm. that he, he was able to be helpful to me even though he never shed light on a possible autism diagnosis, that, um, that, that in a way, I'm, uh, I'm not chastising these therapists for having not told me what I wish I knew years ago when I was working with them. Yeah, when you talk uh, because about I understand there are there are limits. To, yeah, to but that that wish to to have been informed and I yeah I hear I mean bits of it as as you're going through where it felt like either the therapist hadn't established the trust the rapport to to be honest or they didn't feel like it was the right the right timing, which would be an interesting thought of, you know, what is the right timing and why would you withhold that knowledge at any given time if it's something that you feel like would help the, the clinical process for somebody to say, oh, okay, now, now I understand a little bit more about why I perceive something differently or why my perspective exactly, might Jeff. be here. Yes. So when, what would be, if you were to go back and reverse the script on that? Indeed. Yeah. When would you when would you want to be informed and what would you be telling them for other kids going through that same process or young adults of, you know, don't withhold this information because this is what it did for me. It empowered me to do A, B or C. Well, ideally, I would have wanted to have known around the time that my learning disability diagnosis was given which was when I was just shy of three years old. 
the earlier the better. I write in my book, A Long Walk Down a Winding Road, you know, better one than none. Yeah. <laughs> I, had, I had knowledge of the learning disability, which I now think of as really being more of a learning difference. Mm -hmm. uh, but it was called a learning disability back in the day. This was in the early 70s um, when I was just shy of three. But um, the more you know, the earlier you know it, I argue the better off you are just in terms of being able to have that kind of self-knowledge sooner than later, becoming entitled to certain supports, accommodations that can help you be at your best, to have those in place sooner than later. But better one than none. Because of my learning disability, I was able to get great help in school through special education. I had very, very capable special ed teachers, as I recall, in my view at least. But uh, I kind of look at it that way, that if I could rewrite things, I would have known about the autism around the time that I knew about the learning disability. And I would have had a more complete picture, picture of who I am then, rather than to go through the first 40 years of my life not knowing, not understanding why do I have these challenges that other people don't. To go through 40 years of that is emotionally and with respect to self-esteem, just very, very trying. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. That's, that's how I would rewrite things if I could. Yeah. And I mean, when you are talking about the delays in diagnostics, and, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but from what I hear when I talk with other people, it's that gap period is really tough because you it's hard to self-advocate. It's hard to inform the community if you don't have the self-awareness of the information to be able to exactly. advocate around. And it's I agree. It's those it's those pieces I, I feel like are really tough through the process. So when you talk with self-advocates, when you talk with families who are trying to do the best for their loved ones, which of course families are trying to do, yes, yes, how do yes. you approach this at different stages of life? And it surely is individualized, but how do you approach it so that that six-year-old is able to understand why it might be that establishing all the friendships they want is a little bit more of a challenge at times? Or so that they could put it into perspective so they don't feel bad about themselves ever and appreciate themselves throughout the entirety of that process. I think communication is key. Ideally coming from parents to their child of this is what we've learned about you. There is nothing bad or wrong about this. It, it just makes you a little bit different than other people. In many ways, you're just like all your friends and peers. And in other ways, you're distinct. And you're going to face certain challenges and difficulties that others whom you know are not going to face. But your friends as well may be dealing with challenges 
and forms of adversity that you're not dealing with. It's just that these are rel relatively unique challenges when you're in what I would call the neuro minority versus the typical kinds of challenges you might run into with the neuro majority, those who are considered to be neurotypical, non-autistic, mm -hmm. what have you. Yeah. And communication, I feel, in, in a civil, decent type of way, because how we communicate is arguably considerably more important than what we communicate, is how we communicate that information. That to consider what you're saying, how you're saying it, um, and, and explaining it with the right words, because your choice of words in what you tell an impressionable younger person matters. Words matter very, very much. That uh, I think that's the key. I think that art of communication uh, during the formative years of life is is communication and showing understanding like we were talking about before showing acceptance mm -hmm. and uh just like fundamentally in any family reassuring your child that you know we love you we support you as my parents did with me to assure me that there were really, really good things about me that they wanted me to be proud of, all the things that they did to set me up for future happiness and success. Mm -hmm. All of that is very important. Talking about earlier, Sam, is that when you were, when you were describing this conversation, and the affirmations that you need to be doing, the strengths that you need to be including in that conversation. I would imagine a lot of these children have already been beaten down unfairly by society around them, telling them that their yeah. differences are wrong, that, they, that they're having challenges instead of recognizing their strengths through that process. So as a parent, I, I would imagine what what I'm hearing anyways, is that you're, you're really emphasizing that, you know, you have to let this child know where they are strong, where they are so talented, where their heart yes. is. And not it's a just balancing act. I feel you want to be honest about what the likely challenges are that the child's going to face to talk about challenges that are already being contended with as well as strengths and unique attributes. I'm a big fan of full disclosure and, um, and of inclusivity as well. You, you include the challenges and the strengths because they both come together to, to kind of form who that person is. If you think back to your your younger life when you were trying to figure all this out, but because you said you were diagnosed late, so it probably is you had inclinations that you know something something in the way that I'm perceiving that the person next to me might be perceiving it differently, and I might still be in the minority. But how did you balance that internally to say I'm not wrong in the way I'm perceiving everything around me? 
And how did you get the courage to start telling people and advocating your point of view in the way that you're doing now when you're you're kind of the deck is stacked against you by the community at large because they just weren't as informed on the subject? Well, very, very fortunate in many regards with respect to, I guess, my sense of optimism that I find that it's important to disclose certain things about myself. Obviously not everything. There are plenty of things that are private. But um, I think a lot of it, for all the wrong reasons, all of my disclosure and my advocacy, how I've been able to unmask and reveal my autism stems, again, for all the wrong reasons, from the fact that I am white, I am male. Being a white male, I think in society, we get away with things that others don't. Again, for all the wrong reasons in all my writings, uh, in all my public speaking, I always advocate for a more level playing field where ideally when it comes to unmasking and disclosure and advocacy, that whether we are male or female, non-binary, um, the various gender identities, LGBTQ+, skin color, whatever it is, all of that, um, ideally we level that playing field so that all individuals in all the diversity um, across all these kind of different ways that people are described in society nowadays, that we would all, regardless of those things, be able to unmask and disclose. But in order for that to happen, in order for somebody to be able to do that and feel safe doing that, because all too often there's a lot of fear in unmasking, that the stigma has to be addressed. And you need, you need an environment in which it is safe to unmask, which leads to a point I often make, that the people with whom you associate in many ways can make you or break you. Ideally, you want to spend as much time as you can with people around whom it is safe to unmask, to be your true, genuine self and advocate, regardless of all the different ways that we are described in society, where I've always believed that what's inside matters more than what's on the outside, who that person is, their personality, um, how they treat themselves, how they treat others, what their beliefs are, what do they believe in. To me, that's what matters more than gender identity, than sexual orientation, uh, than skin color ethnicity, religion, what have you, the whole gamut. Mm -hmm. 
unfortunately, we live in a society where those things do matter and they do enter the picture in terms of how we judge one another. So I'm very cognizant of those things. You've done a really good job of of being out there and being able to help to educate. I know that uh, you, you're involved with a lot of work groups on helping to educate the, the community around and to help give a voice to self-advocates. But I mean, if you were to sit down and talk to, um, I mean, regardless if we're talking neurodiversity or we're talking just uh, masking in general, if you were to sit down and talk to a population of people and give them the value of unmasking, the value of, of being able to speak authentically about, you know, this is my experience and this is who I am and this is what I want out of life. What did that bring to you? What did that change for your ability to kind of feel more at home in all walks of life? I felt at home in the way you just described, Jeff, because of the people I've been most fortunate to be surrounded with. I found myself uh, in, in these environments where it was safe to unmask without consequence. Not everybody has that. And that as an advocate, and as I think many advocates do, is what we're trying to change. With acceptance, with a sense of belonging, and acceptance for who we are, that we don't need to be fixed, we need to be accepted and feel like we belong in that kind of environment, which I've been fortunate really to have with respect to my workplace, with respect to my family, my friends, that that's the environment I've been in that I'm able to be my true, genuine self without consequence. And I'm very, very fortunate for that. No, and, and the work that you're doing, I think, is empowering a lot of people in the community to start to have that same viewpoint of, you know, I hope it is. I can't be I hope closed. So. I've got to be open. I have to listen. I can't put this on somebody else that they have to be the only one with courage. Is that the whole community at large has to have courage to say, you know, I need to change the way that I'm approaching these situations and I need to be open minded to everybody. But where can people learn about the work that you're doing? Because you're creating this wonderful dialogue and these great conversations. So where can people turn to? There are any number of places to turn to. There are a multitude of organizations in the community that are there to help neurodivergent individuals have more meaningful connected lives. As far as I'm concerned, my book and my articles, the book can be purchased and learned about, and my articles can be accessed on my website, uh, which is samfarmerauthor.com, which pretty much covers everything that to date I have to contribute where as an advocate, I choose to advocate through my writing and through my podcasts like this one, through my public speaking is how I advocate. 
And there are communities in social media that are absolutely worth seeking out, um, where social media for me has opened up so many doors to, to meeting people who have helped me to further my advocacy mission and which has helped many others to further their advocacy missions, particularly on LinkedIn, there's an ever-growing uh, neurodiversity community on LinkedIn with all kinds of wonderful, smart, insightful, well-intentioned people uh, from whom I've learned a great deal, whose opinions and lived experiences that they share in social media have had a direct impact on me and how I look at things um, as a neurodivergent individual. So any number of, of those kinds of places that people can turn to, not just from what I have to offer, but from what these organizations and other neurodivergent individuals can offer globally uh, from all walks of life, um, from any number of different countries, men, women, non-binary, heterosexual, LGBTQ+, uh, white, black, Hispanic, you name it. I mean, autism knows not those kinds of categories and boundaries. The autism spectrum, the neurodiversity community, are both global in scale and affect all the meaningful categories uh, of, of how society categorizes people. Mm -hmm. so, so whoever you may be, um, there's a, uh, there's a place for you in this community. And you'll find like-minded people like you and others not like you, where often you'll, you'll encounter dissent when you meet other people. With any diversified community, there are gonna be strong disagreements, sometimes very sharp disagreements on things. But where it's by and large, from what I've seen, understood that it's important to express dissent in a civil and understanding way. I've learned more from dissent than from people with whom I agree, because in listening to other contrasting viewpoints, my eyes have often been opened to things I hadn't thought about prior. Yeah, well, I mean, I think that just the, your willingness to share your thoughts and experiences and to to bring up these conversations to allow for that to take place as that we'll always appreciate it. And Sam, I appreciate the fact that you came back on to talk about these these issues because they they are ones that I still think we're just at the base of, of kind of talking about. I, it's been around for a while, but we haven't had the confidence to come and, and bring communities together to say, let's start sharing experiences to make each other better. So I appreciate you doing this today. Thank you very much, Jeff. Thank you for listening to Autism Weekly. 
We hope you tune back in next week to learn more about autism in the real world. Autism Weekly is now found on all the major listening apps, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Amazon Music, and more. Subscribe to be notified when we post a new podcast. Autism Weekly is produced by ABS Kids. ABS Kids is proud to provide diagnostic assessments and ABA therapy to children with developmental delays like autism spectrum disorder. You can learn more about ABS Kids and the Autism Weekly podcast by visiting abskids.com. Thanks for tuning in. See you again next week.